Welcome everyone to the second episode of season three of the Northern Spin Podcast. I'm Michael Taylor. By day, I'm the editor of Business Desk in the Northwest, where I attempt to paint a realistic picture of life in the business world up north. By contrast, here's my co-presenter, Chris. I only publish good news, Maguire. Yeah, thank you Welcome, very much. Welcome, Chris. No, thank you very much. Yeah, executive editor of Business Cloud. Um, I do write lots of stories, Michael, some positive, some negative, but clearly you're referring to my happy, clappy Friday blog. Only on, good news. On LinkedIn, when I only publish good news stories as well, which has got a huge following. Stephen um, Bartlett, rah, rah, rah. It's, uh, it's good. Anyway, uh, it's been another good week for Northern Spin, even if it hasn't been a good week for you, Michael. The thing I love is being contacted by new listeners to the podcast, and I've got one here that I'd like to read out. Uh, this is a quote. I love Northern Spin so much that I've given up my job to focus on the podcast. Oh, wow. Who's that from? Uh, N. Sturgeon in Scotland. Ah, <laughs> you've obviously made that one up. Well, a bit of humour. We love a bit of humour, Michael. We could all do with a bit more. No, uh, I might have made as long it up. As, as long as... Our regular listeners always say, don't let Maguire tell dad jokes. No, I don't do dad jokes. Um, they may well be the views of Nicholas Sturgeon, but we are going to be talking about the outgoing First Minister of Scotland later. But on a separate note, we've had some lovely messages this week, which we're going to just read out a few of them. Yeah, Jonathan Murphy, the CEO of Assura PLC. Fantastic podcast. Production is really professional and the topics are really relevant and important for the region. That's brilliant. Absolutely, absolutely. Did and you, th- you make that up? Like no, you made the other one up? No, absolutely. I, what, I, wow. no, what I did, I posted on LinkedIn the fact that we're coming back for a third series yeah. through popular demand and I had more responses to that than most other posts last week and that's great. Joe Shipper, Managing Director of a company called Hatter, their promotional company. She's the mother of one of our sponsors, Lily Shippen. She said, this is the only political podcast I listen to and that's because it's engaging, entertaining, and covering topics we actually want to listen to. Brilliant. And Anthony Morrow, the founder of Open Money, said, first timer and really enjoyable and insightful. Some great points made. Looking forward to next. It's nice to hear that. But what's particularly good to hear, if I may say so, is how the professionalism of what media has been recognised by our listeners. Now, we know this, don't we? Because we've got ringside seats. We get to see how professional what media are from Elise's, Ellis's WhatsApp messages in advance of Monday's recording to the actual podcast, the editing, the release of it, where it's placed. I can't speak highly enough of our partners, what media. I couldn't agree more. As I said before, they feel like friends as well. Um, I have had a complaint, actually, from oh, Donald oh. Donald Moore, chair of One and All, who says we don't mention him as much as we used to. So this is to the Don. Welcome, Don. Um, now, we couldn't produce Northern Spin without our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, who committed to sponsor the entire third series of Northern Spin. We'll talk about Lily Shippen in part two, as we always do, but Oscar and their CEO, Andy Morell, share our commitment to integrity. Integrity is a thing we value most of all. There are certain sponsors we wouldn't work with. Oscar recently sponsored Forever Manchester's 2023 party and Andy Morell recently won the title of CEO of the year for the second time. I was looking at his LinkedIn profile on uh, Saturday and it starts with the line, I work for my people. That runs through Oscar like a stick of Blackpool Rock. So we're delighted that uh, Oscar should be sponsoring Northern Spin. So Michael, what was the biggest story of the week? Well, without a doubt, Chris, it was Nicola Sturgeon's resignation as the First Minister of Scotland and the leader of the SNP. Yeah, absolutely. I think it surprised a lot of people, probably because it was in half term as well. Um, I need you to cut. Uh, I need you to cut me some slack today because I think her resignation really opens the door for Labour to win a sizable majority in the next general election. So I want to start this week's Northern Spin by talking about a subject very close to your heart: the Labour Party. Well, I'm interested to see where you're going to go with this one because it. Well, it's, for a start, it's a it's a welcome change from you just wanging on about your mate Lee Anderson and how great he is and how authentic he is. So, yep, fill your boots, Chris. Absolutely. Now, Northern Spin is a podcast devoted to shining a light on the north, predominantly the north of England. I watched Nicholas Sturgeon's resignation press conference and I was thinking to myself, how do we make this relevant to the north? And then... It hit me. What hit you? Patience, Michael. Patience didn't hit me. You need some patience. Everybody agrees that Labour are odds on to win the next general election. But the big question is, how can they win a sizable majority? I think they've got to turn 120 seats red. Now, it's the reason why so much effort is being put by Labour into winning back the red wall seats that uh, that, uh, Labour lost to the Tories in the North in 2019. But consider this. Consider what? Consider this. 
Sturgeon's resignation has triggered a sequence of events, like a domino effect, that significantly increased Labour's chances of winning a majority at the next general election. I'm going to take you back a bit to 2005. Labour won 41 of Scotland's 59 Westminster seats. Now, fast forward 14 years to 2019 general election. It won just one seat. If you could tell me who won it, I'd probably buy you a drink. Well, you don't drink, do you? Um, but they won one seat in the 2019 general election compared to the SNP's 48. Now, analysts say that Labour were targeting 15 seats in the general election, but that's now up to 25 to 30 um, in the light of uh, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation. Before we do a deep dive on why I think Labour's chances of winning a majority at the next general election have shot up, what lessons do you think we can learn from Nicola Sturgeon and why she stepped down? Uh, Ian Murray, Edinburgh West, by the way, was the only Labour MP that won. What drink do you want? And I just want to tell the listeners, I thought to myself, he's looked at his mobile phone there to check it out, and he hasn't. It's on the other side of the room. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think what you're in danger of doing is you're guilty of doing the very thing that so enrages Scottish people when English pundits talk about politics north of the border, viewing it narrowly through the national UK prism. So let's just pull back a minute. There is and has been this acute sense of grievance that created the wave of Scottish nationalism, a sense that politics isn't working for the people of Scotland and they've had a raw deal. So when Labour introduced the Scottish Parliament in the 1997 government, it was meant to settle the issue of autonomy, things like the West Lothian question. And I'll buy you a drink back if you can tell me what the West Lothian question is. Um, but instead, it ushered in a restless and boisterous call for a referendum on full independence that David Cameron, um, as the Tory Prime Minister, agreed to and then won, but with the enthusiastic backing of the Scottish Labour Party under Jim Murphy. Then, at the 2015 general election, Labour paid a terrible, terrible price for that, as you said. Nicola Sturgeon's time has ended for the two reasons that political careers always end. Vision and governance. Her attempts to call another referendum have been thwarted. The government of the British government, to be fair, have stood up to her. Then claims that the next general election will be a de facto referendum. All it's done is it's made the SNP a single-issue party, and that's been her big mistake. It's called into question her long-term vision and what she's actually doing for the people and voters of Scotland. Former Labour Minister Brian Wilson said this week, her failure lay in a distinctly limited vision beyond the single cause that got her out of bed in the morning, which is then linked to the second point, quite important in politics, what you do with power once you've got it. And the SNP's online supporters, as you may know, are absolutely vociferous, and some of them can be quite intolerant. They're right up there with the Brexit Brigade and the Corbynistas as being proper keyboard warriors. But look at Nicola Sturgeon's record in office. Drug deaths, the highest in Europe. Education, really poorly underperforming. Health, cities, just as some examples. For a small country... With unprecedented devolution of powers, Scotland has actually become a very centralised country. I remember talking to Andy Burnham about this about 18 months ago. And we were, we were talking about how Glasgow, Edinburgh and Dundee deserve city deals and autonomy over things like transport every bit as much as Leeds, Manchester and Bristol. And that's a real attack line for Labour in Scotland. So to answer your question as to lessons that we can learn from this, Nicola Sturgeon's waded into a culture war with issues on the gender recognition is issue and that has got to be a big warning sign. As her success, as her predecessor, Alex Salmond has said in the last week, 30 years of gradually building, building, building and we throw it away with this self-indulgent nonsense. So before we get back to making it all about Labour, which I know you love doing. Um, what's your view of Nicola Sturgeon? Well, before I answer that question, what I should say is I think we should do an extra podcast on the West Lothian question. Um, <laughs> obviously, I can answer the question now and take your money, but I think we need a two-hour special. Do you know what the West Lothian question is? No, I don't. It's a question about West Lothian, probably. No, it's, uh, it, it's about whether English MPs should vote on Scottish issues. If you'd asked me what the Barnet formula was, I could have come up with an answer. Um, now... 
whatever the SNP argue, they have one focus, which is Scottish independence. Uh, and that's a long way off. Now, most polls show the majority of the public don't even want a second independence vote. The Press and Journal said, their local newspaper up there said in their editorial after her resignation, in the end, I'm quoting, the polished exterior stripped away to reveal very little substance at the heart of what the First Minister has achieved. I think, personally, that's a bit harsh. I think Sturgeons Why? are formidable. Well, I think in a sense that if... It, if you look at what she achieved, and she her poll ratings during COVID were excellent, um, and and she and she was a figure that I think uh, stood up to Boris Johnson and stood up to stood up to the government in the uh, in uh, in England. Um, I think the problem was, like you said, that that you know she didn't want to deal with issues where she had direct influence over health, for example. And, and whenever she was asked questions about health, she always batted it back and said, well, if we had independence, it would be a lot better. Um, and it was supposed to be a once in a generation vote, the first referendum vote in 2014. Well, you know, generations last more than 10 years. So I think, I, I think she was, and actually people are making comparisons between her and Jacinda Ahern as well. And they're saying, actually, it's quite interesting. Our two highly prominent women leaders in politics have resigned within a month of each other as well. Um, I think the problem with Sturgeon is she came unstuck when she nailed her colours to the mast over the gender recognition bill. The name I think that will come back to haunt Sturgeon in years to come is the transgender double rapist Isla Bryson. Now Sturgeon got really flustered in a press conference about referring to Bryson as she and uh, she came under a lot of criticism about the whole gender recognition bill. You don't want to be on the wrong side of JK Rowling when it comes to something like that and in fairness to Sturgeon as well we've not touched that subject because it scares us because i'm not sure we can do it justice as well uh, I, I noticed angela rayner got some stick over the weekend as well it's a horrible subject to discuss because people are looking for you to you know make a fraudulent slip um i, I think how will how will history judge nicola sturgeon i think she was okay but she didn't deliver on what she was supposed to do and i think whoever takes that um, you know, it becomes the next leader of the SNP party is going to have the same problem. Because yeah, the, the reason I the reason I said that I, I agreed with that analysis of the press and journal that you thought was harsh. I think they did recognise that the polish exterior, yeah, and all her electoral success, but she never she never reaped the rewards of that. She never actually wielded power in a way that made change for the people of Scotland. And I think I think the English commentariat have a view, particularly the left leaning one will have a view that, oh, yeah, she's sort of like a Scandinavian politician. She's like like a character off Borgen or something, that she um, she's articulate, she hates the Tories, she hates Brexit, we hate those things as well, so she kind of must be all right. But actually the reality of Scottish politics and how divided and, and how divisive the SNP have made it, I think it's opened it up to, um, you know, the accusation a lot of my Labour Scottish friends call the SNPs the Tartan Tories because they've got very long memories thinking back to how the SNP enabled the Tory government of the 1970s and ushered in the Thatcher era. And, and actually, they're just not very good at governing. One of the things that Sturgeon did, she introduced weekly questions for the media, so she'd have a weekly press conference. The problem was the press up there started asking some questions she didn't want to answer and she, she, she lost control of the narrative. Yeah, well, you know, the press and journal up in Aberdeen have been a constant... Um, pecking at her head on, on a lot of these issues, which is good. But, um, but yeah, they, they seem to be remarkably thin-skinned when it comes to criticism. But anyway, so you, you mentioned earlier that you think Labour are odds-on to win a majority at the next general election. I think that's fair. I think all the polls are pointing towards about a 20-point lead. I read all the analysis of people like Will Jennings and um, Professor John Curtis. So, yeah, I'm agreeing with that. But apart from you stating the bleeding obvious, what... What, yep. gives you, what gives you the confidence about that? Well, you know, you are the Labourist. Um, we know that. Um, so I think you can give much C more insight. Centrist dad, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah okay. Centrist dad slash Labourist. So, um, so you can give your opinion um, on, on a couple of things that I, I saw at the weekend. This is the reason I'd be confident if I was a Labour supporter, right? Scotland's Labour leader, Anisawa, comes across really good, really impressive. There was no surprise at the weekend to see Sir Keir Starmer in Edinburgh addressing the Scottish Labour Conference. He knows what Scotland has uh, has been opened up now because of Nicola Sturgeon leaving. Um, he's once again emphasised the fact that they won't do a deal with the SNP, uh, which I think was important as well. Labour have finally binned off Jeremy Corbyn um, by saying he, he can't stand as a candidate in Islington North as well. Starmer last week held a very high-profile visit to Ukraine. I always think, you know, when politicians are feeling confident about taking office, when they start doing the foreign policy stuff. Now, even you would have to admit, Michael, and let's be honest, you sometimes are a glass half empty man. Things are looking pretty positive for Labour. I do, but much as I cheer the binning off, as you put it, of Jeremy Corbyn, there is a danger 
that this is a sore that will continue to fester for Keir Starmer. It might start to look very heavy-handed and mean. You know, even if you're people like you who aren't that politically engaged in the minutiae of internal Labour Party, internal battles are starting to pick it up. Um, every day on Twitter, Jeremy Corbyn is a trending topic. Now, I know Twitter isn't real, isn't the real world, and I know social media tends to polarise it from the extremes, but there is a noisy and angry groundswell that continues to push out the view that the left are relevant and that socialism is being squeezed out of the Labour Party. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that's a fair point. I mean, I think you uh, write off Jeremy Corbyn and everything that he brings with it at your peril. Wearing your Labour hat, I would like to get your insight on a few things. Now, we don't want to go into too much detail about this again because we spoke about it a lot last week. Labour's MP selection process because uh, Lee Drenham, not included in Labour's long list for Bolton North East, and Angela Rayner came up to support him last weekend. Very similar to a situation that rose in Wakefield as well. And Labour have been accused of running a clique in London. Do you think there is any truth in that? Yeah, I think there is partly true. So I, I listened back to the podcast last week and I just wanted to clear something up. Individual local Labour Party members are the ones who ultimately vote for and campaign for who they want to be their Labour candidate and therefore the MP at that election. The clique in London refers to the the part of the Labour NEC, the committee that's been pulled together, and there are, there are names like Morgan McSweeney and Matt Folding who are running the process of candidate selection out of Labour Party headquarters. And that is being tightly controlled. The local selection committee, the, the people who've resigned both in Wakefield earlier in the year um, when there was a by-election there and who've resigned over Bolton Northeast selection process, they, they run the process. They don't choose the candidate. And the local constituency committee, though, still does have a powerful sway with things like endorsements. In Bolton, they're particularly annoyed that the shortlist has been imposed upon them, as they were in Wakefield, and, and as I said, in Tony Blair's old seat of Sedgefield. But for the record, as I mentioned before, I have supported three fantastic women candidates who stood to be parliamentary candidates and were unsuccessful. So I am the kiss of death. So I, can I say right here, right now, I am absolutely not supporting Elsie Blundell in Haywood and Middleton. You can say that as well. And actually, I'm not going to support Elsie Blundell. But what I will say is that is a seat Labour have got to win because that is a way for thin majority for the Conservatives, Haywood and Middleton. Yeah, my as memory. is Bolton North East, as you yeah. mentioned. Uh, now, I've spoken about Labour's anonymous shadow cabinet. You make an interesting point earlier, actually, which is this, which is, you know, I might not be interested in minutiae of Labour politics. I'm not. I'll look at Labour list, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't, I, you know, the nuances, that's, that's, that's your game. Um, but if Labour are going to win the next general election with the majority that they need, they need to convince people like me. So um, I look at the fact that Labour's shadow cabinet is completely anonymous, other than a few names at the top. And there's a lot of talk at the moment, a lot of rumours about a shadow um, cabinet reshuffle. What do you think can happen? And do you think they'll look at Angela Rayner's position and try and water that down again? Well, they can't, Chris. And again, I'm, I apologise for, for boring people with the minutiae of the Labour Party. Angela Rayner is the elected deputy leader of the Labour Party. That can't be watered down. I mean, the Corbynistas wanted to water down Tom Watson's role in the Labour Party when he was a thorn in Jeremy Corbyn's side, talking about even abolishing the role of, uh, of deputy leader or even making, making it a rule that it, if it was a male leader, it had to be a female deputy leader. And they were talking about putting Ange in place then. But, but she does, you're right, have a large policy portfolio. Not only um, does she have a, a larger interest, it's also the longest job title I think I've ever seen. It is and I have to take a breath now, Shadow First Secretary of State, Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. Hmm. Now, Keir Starmer has tried, tried to change her role before, after Labour lost the Hartlepool by-election, and he came unstuck, and I think he would be mad to try it again. Anyway, this nonsense that you're dropping in casually as if it's fact <laughs> that the Labour Party has got an anonymous shadow cabinet. I was looking at the trending names over the weekend on Twitter, right? Again, I know Twitter is not the real world, right? It is a microcosm of it. It's the politically engaged. But I didn't see any Tory politicians' names trending, yeah? Even with Rishi Sunak out and about in Northern Ireland and Liz Truss and Johnson, uh, you know, making ridiculous statements. Rob being subject to a lot of scrutiny. No, the names that were trending were Lisa Nandy and Yvette Cooper and Angela Rayner. 
Yeah, so what, you're telling me that they're anonymous, and yet you seem strangely obsessed with these women Labour no. uh, politicians who who you want to continually do down. That's for. because of Twitter's. That's because, that's of, the because of Twitter's out. No, that's because of Twitter's algorithms that know that you like Labour stuff, and they keep like putting these names on your timeline. No, it's not um, my. No, Chris, it's not my timeline. It's trending topics on Twitter. I think. Before today's um, conversation, what I did, I reminded myself of the uh, 2021 uh, Labour cabinet, uh, shadow cabinet reshuffle, when um, when Starmer tried to water down Angela Rayner's roles then. And apparently she was absolutely livid and effectively locked him in a room until she got what she wanted. So, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think he'll be going down that road again. I don't think it would send out a very good message to the unions as well. The reason I talk about... Rayner, Nandy, Cooper, etc. isn't because I'm obsessed by them and people like West Streeting. It's because nobody's heard of the rest of the Shadow Cabinet outside Labourists like you. But facts, nobody's heard facts. of the rest of the Tory Cabinet. No, no, well, listen, I'm just, just making, aren't that bothered. I'm just making the point that the Shadow Cabinet... Listen, well, you know, you mark my words, mark my words, some of these Shadow Cabinet members will get booted out and no one will care because no one knows who they are in the first place because they're not doing anything. They're now apparently doing PowerPoint presentations and stuff to try and emphasise the fact that people have heard of them. They haven't. Can I just say to the people who we've never heard of or I've never heard of, you are welcome on Northern Spin to put your side of the story forward. Um, what do you think about Labour's latest attack line, which I think is interesting because they're going after the Conservatives over and government ministers and officials spending taxpayer-funded credit cards on luxury travel and hotels claiming they're using public money and I quote like a cash machine now they're called GPC files and examples of the bills include £3,393 on 13 fine art photographs do you think that's fair game yeah so let me just explain because you haven't government procurement cards GPCs are widely used across Whitehall as a quick and simple way to buy goods and services it's like a company credit card However, buried beneath the tens of thousands of normal purchases, you know, stationery and stuff, there's an extensive evidence of misreporting, waste and excess that Labour claims reflects a Tory government that holds little respect for public money. Entitlement. Entitlement and Tories, two words that often go quite well together with this rabble at the moment. That's why they've uploaded to a database every single GPC purchase above 500 quid made by 14 major Whitehall departments in the last available year, 2021, when, of course, Johnson was in power. And they will also add the data for the Ministry of Defence when it is available. Like the expense claims and who funds politics story that Tortoise Media and Sky did, I love things like this. It's good data journalism and anything that holds the government to account has to be a good thing. But you seem sniffy and critical of Labour's tactic. Why is that? No, I, listen, I'm all for transparency I'm, and I'm all for this sort of stuff being um, shared and people forming their own opinion. I mean, um, I, I was doing some research today because I've never, I've got funny ears. Um, I tried some of these um, the, these uh, ear pods or AirPods or whatever they're called and they kept falling out of my ears. Apparently I've got the wrong shaped ears. But I thought to myself, how much do they cost? And I thought, well, I can get a decent pair for £129 if I so wished as well. Angela Rayner, who has been challenging the Conservative over their spending spent £249 of taxpayers' money on some AirPods and £1,600 on an iPad. So when she was putting the case forward about, you know, frivolous spending by the Conservatives, she was challenged in a BBC interview about the, the £249 she spent on taxpayers' money. I think both sides, it's not a part political point, both sides need to spend responsibly. Um, I'm not sure if this tactic by Labour worked. I think Angela Rayner needs to be really careful because she is increasingly becoming the story and I don't think that's helpful. Well, she's the story because men who are slightly obsessed with her like you keep making it about her precisely because she's different she's articulate she's working class and yeah it's a lively debate about all things labor but come on let's change the subject talk about something else other than your slightly weird obsession with Ange. okay um lee anderson <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah let's definitely talk let's go talk about Ange again okay. then, yeah. so tell me you've seen an interesting stat this week right? yeah and quite a worrying stat, actually. We've spoken before about all the Conservative MPs who are jumping ship um, from the uh, before the next election. Um, so every week there's a new MP who's announced that they're standing down. There's two that stood down this week or announced they're standing down. One's a 46-year-old Stevens MP called Stephen McParland, not somebody we've mentioned before. He's uh, announced he's standing down. Now, there's lots of reasons for that. Obviously, the Conservatives have got a 20-point deficit to make up in the polls. That would be one obvious reason. But last week, a man who sent um, the MP, Deanna Davis, harassing emails, calling her a B-I-T-C-H, as you know, don't like to swear, and a neo-Nazi over the course of 
10 months has been spared jail. Davison, she's only 29. She's standing down as the MP for Bishop Auckland. She only won the seat in 2019, seen very much as a rising star of the Conservative Party. Your favourite person, Lee Anderson, tweeted that he's been the subject of two death threats and a blackmail allegation that are currently being investigated at the moment. You stood to be an MP once upon a time. Um, who would want to be an MP? Would you want to be an MP now, given all the exposure and scrutiny that you'd be under? No, and I actually thought this point at the... <laughs> I attended the... Manchester City Council planning committee last week that dragged on for four hours with all sorts of ludicrous nitpicking and not getting on with it sort of discussions. And I thought this sort of stuff just drives me mad. And it drove me mad when I was working at the council as well, just seeing the sort of idiot things that opposition or different parties councillors will say just to make points. It would drive me absolutely mad. It's also horrible. It infects all areas of public life. I think um, some of the th some of the things that uh, politicians, journalists, and MPs uh, and council leaders in Oldham have been attacked by a cabal of local head cases led by a vicious network of conspiracy theorists proves that it's actually not safe to be um, someone who sticks your head above the parapet. It comes back to an erosion of trust in information, authority, and an assumption of bad faith all round. And with that, we're going to go to our first interval. <music> Welcome back to the second part of Northern Spin. As, you, as we mentioned earlier, our sponsors at Oscar and Lily Shippen have committed to sponsor the entire third season of the podcast. And you heard firsthand, Chris, what difference Lily Shippen is making to business in the North. Yeah, that's right. Um, by way of background, Lily Shippen recruit a range of roles across business support and HR, including executive assistants, HR managers, and many more. I'm not going to name names, but recently I was attending an event where I was speaking to the founder of a business in the North who's working with a PA from Lily Shippen and uh, she's already got him and his business working so much more efficiently. Uh, he messaged me on Friday to say that they're tracking for their best month yet. Lots of reasons for that. But he talks about the influence of the PA on his business. He doesn't look at how much money he's costing now to have a PA, but rather how much money it's saving his business. It's transformational. So if you're an MD, a CEO, a vice chancellor of a university, a business leader in the North, remember the name, Lily Shippen. Now, before we go on manoeuvres, I want to get your take on some of the big political stories of the week. It's a whistle-stop tour. It's entitled Anything to See Here. And um, there was a really sad story, and it's been a really sad story over the last three weeks. I live in Lancashire. Um, police searching for missing dog walker Nicola Bully in Lancashire found a body a mile away on Sunday. At the time of recording this, which is on Monday, there's been no formal identification, but Nicola's family have spoken about their agony and our hearts go out to them. Uh, they really do. The case has dominated headlines and social media channels now for over three weeks since she went missing. I'll be honest with you, I found the whole case really uncomfortable. Rishi Sunak, Keir Starmer, uh, Suella Braverman have all expressed concern about Lancashire Police after they made public the missing mum's battles with uh, alcohol and the menopause. Um, anything to see here? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot to see, to be honest, Chris. Um, I think there's a lot of public discontent about the operation of the criminal justice system. I think that's a topic that will get more and more intense as we move up towards a general election, just to you know, ever so slightly run the danger of politicising this awful, awful story up there in Lancashire. I spoke to a family member last week who told me a hard fact about the case that was completely wrong. You know, came from a bad source, passed around third hand, and this kind of currency of information, you don't, people aren't turning to the reliable sources of local newspapers, which we'll talk about later, or the BBC, but actually thinking as fact that some idiot on TikTok commenting on the case is as reliable a source of information. The excellent Mariana Spring from the BBC has covered how conspiracy theorists and trolls are targeting survivors of crimes and terror attacks, like the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017, with some going as far as to track them down offline and to quiz them and to say that they're lying about their injuries. One of the things is calling them paid actors that actually... that. Anyway, I'm not, I don't want to give credence to any of this by repeating the sort of nonsense that gets um, that gets thrown about, but the whole awful, awful Nicola Bully case has seen a drastic spiralling of speculation and conspiracy theories, which did trigger statements from Nicola's family and the police who have issued dispersal orders to these troops of self-appointed investigators. At a news conference last week, Lancashire police singled out TikTokers whom they said had been playing their own 
playing as private detectives up there in St. Michael's. They said social media speculation has been a massive hindrance to their investigation, with Deputy Superintendent Becky Smith saying that she had never seen anything like it in 29 years of working as a police officer. Social media algorithms fueled by the conspiracy lexicon of have really, really undermined trust in institutions, including the police, which is already at a pretty all-time low. So, Chris, I'd like to get some insights from you now because you worked as a local newspaper reporter covering some really high-profile police cases, including the serial killers Fred and Rose West in Gloucester. So what do you think? Yeah, and I'm not giving too much about the way we work, but the way we work is we basically you know, work on a script, we knock it between each other and you always write like a teacher marking my copy, insight, 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 and you're spot on actually. So I was thinking about Fred and Rose West 29 years ago actually since they were arrested and charged. I was working at the Gloucester Shreco at the time. I've been a journalist for a long time and what it did get me thinking was the biggest change or one of the biggest changes that I've noticed is the watering down of the relationship between the police and the media during my career. And I'll give you an insight. So after I went traveling around the world, I got a job at the Yorkshire Evening Post in Leeds between 1996 and 1998, I got to work uh, with a couple of crime correspondents. One was called Dave Bruce and the other one was called Bruce Smith. Uh, I always got their names wrong, but they were very, very, very different journalists. And Dave Bruce, he uh, was there for, he was at the Yorkshire Evening Post for about 40 years. He knew all the police and all the police trusted him. If I was to do an impression of Brucey now, when he was speaking to the police in the morning, you'd laugh, but it was so familiar. Over the years, he covered all the big stories. He did the Yorkshire Ripper murders. He did the Michael Sam's kidnapping case. He would go out socializing with the, detect with the uh, detectives on a Friday. He'd attend all the leaving dues. If you had to stand a story up, if a story broke and you needed somebody to confirm it, Dave Bruce was the person you'd go to. He loved to socialize. He loved to smoke. He, he died, sadly, in 2012. I read his tributes last night, actually. And it was the police who led the tributes. Now, unfortunately, the days of crime reporters like Dave Bruce are over. So detectives are actively discouraged from having relationships with the media. They're actually asked to disclose any friendships they've got with people in the media as well. And you can understand why, um, because they're worried about uh, people being over-familiar. But then you get a case like Nicola Bully. There's no relationship between the police and the media. And in fairness to Lancashire Police, um, you know, when Dave Bruce was in his pomp, and it was a pomp, um, the police didn't have to contend with TikTok and these armchair detectors on Twitter. I, I uh, saw a tweet, a horrible tweet, um, you know, from Amanda Platel. No surprise there that I should use the term horrible tweet in association with Amanda Platel's name. When she was talking about the dress worn by one of the detectives in the case, it, it, it was disgusting. Uh, it was horrendous. It does nothing to, to, to narrow that gap between the police and the media relations. It's just horrendous. Yeah, it's, 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 thank you. I set you that homework because I want to get the best out of you. I, I think you need to keep pushing yourself. So I'll write see me okay. on the script in future. Do I get a B plus for that or not? Yeah, you don't. Okay. No, no, it's good. It's really, really interesting, isn't yeah. it? How how that interplay works. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same in, in lots of other newsrooms. I, I've had the, the opportunity to interact with the old Bill a few times. And when they trust you and you say, look, I'm not going to interrupt your case. I'm not going to do anything that's going to disrupt the investigations that you're doing, but work with me. I, I've had some really, really good results. And... Um, yeah, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, does there? We there, are, there aren't any evidence of actually there being any local journalists. That's part of the other issue, and we'll probably come on to that when we talk about local papers later. But anyway, it, it just proves as well my watchword about the Daily Mail. The only good woman in the Daily Mail is an unhappy one. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll Amanda move on. Amanda Platel, what's she all about? Yeah, no, I, I listen. The pop, we talk about clickbait, and Amanda Platel is effectively a shock jock equivalent in yeah. in um, in national newspaper. She's trying to make herself relevant by being nasty, um, and uh, she's just a. Um, I, I, I won't mention her again because I don't think she deserves any airtime. One thing I do want to talk to you about. This is a story much closer to home. Clean air zone charges. There's a story last week uh, saying that they're highly unlikely to be introduced across Greater Manchester, except in two boroughs. I think. Stockport's one actually. No, it's not. Um, is it not? Nope. Uh, Salford's one. Salford and Manchester. Okay. Uh, Andy Burnham made a big play about clean air zones. This looks like a watering down again. Anything to see here? Yes. Yes, there's lots to see here. This has proved to be a very, very tough political high wire act for Andy Burnham. Now, it's laudable to clean up our air. I, when I used to see these vans around with no to clean air zone, I used to think, you don't want clean air? You want dirty air? You know, what a thing to, to, what, to campaign for. 
But um, he was looking to take action to get polluting vehicles off our roads. But White Van Man and the taxi firms pointed out that they actually had no alternative because there weren't the throughput of green vehicles for them to replace. There weren't, so the incentive didn't work. It was just punitive. And frankly, I think Andy Burnham and his team lost control of the narrative on that issue. Um, since pausing it, he's done very well in pushing the onus onto the government. The evidence is there that there are still seriously worrying levels of nitrous oxide in the air in some particular black spots around Greater Manchester, and that they might have to introduce a clean air zone. There's couple of particular areas like Regent Road in Salford and parts of Manchester city centre that are particularly um, high. But yeah, yeah, does that clear things up for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Something yeah. to see there? Yeah, sometimes when I go down the M1 and I get to, you get to Sheffield, it says, can you slow your speed down to 60 miles an hour because of, uh, because of trying to clean the air? I don't understand enough enough about that and to why it would work but um yeah it's it's probably not a vote winner but but it shouldn't be about winning votes um rishi anyway, sunak yeah you've barely mentioned rishi you, you love rishi having a good week don't you <laughs> yeah, well I, I has think, he had a good week i think the thing is with rishi sunak, i think he's had a solid week but i think rishi does a lot of his work behind the scenes when he's got his cashmere jumper on and i think he's such a refreshing um you know clean air <laughs> clean air, fresh air blast compared to what came before him as well okay. he he grabbed He's grabbed a lot of headlines about a possible deal about the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's interesting because if you watch the way that's played out over the last three days, you know, Rishi Sunak drops in on Northern Ireland. It was interesting, actually, because his visit was really understated. It was a journalist who was at a, um, it was at a gym, spotted the fact there was a lot of activity and put two and two together. And then suddenly Rishi Sunak turned up and then 10 Downing Street had to confirm that he was there, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the way Rishi Sunak does stuff. He does stuff behind the scenes. I think if he could get a deal over the Northern Ireland protocol, then it would be a game changer for him. He's got a big problem, though. He's got a win over the DUP. And, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's been stirring things up over the weekend, which is particularly unhelpful. Yeah, so that might segue very nicely into our next segment, which is uh, when we look about who's on manoeuvres. I think Can I right, on one crew, thing? right on cue, Boris Johnson or Alexander de Peffel Johnson is definitely on manoeuvres. Yeah, yeah. I think I just mentioned one thing about Sunak as well, though, is that is that you know that Northern Ireland protocol great deal. In Kashmir. No, that that um, that that ten good news things for today. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll talk about some good news things later. Actually, um, I see Bolton. I see uh, you know Blackburn got a win at the weekend. That's a that's a good news story. But no, in terms of Sunak, Sunak last Monday came up to Oldham. He was at the opening of a ten million pound health diagnosis centre. They're very little way of media attention for it. Oldham CDC is a one-stop shop for cancer checks, scans and tests. Health Secretary Stephen Barclay has announced plans for 19 similar centres. I think this is the future of the NHS with these types of centres. It was a good news story. It didn't get a lot of airtime. I also think it's good that Sunik came back up to the north and people are starting to stop asking questions about using a helicopter or using a plane to get up to the north. In terms of Boris Johnson and on manoeuvres, yeah, um, he is definitely on manoeuvres. He's, um, he's put his blonde tassels above the parapet again. He's only trying to stir it up. And I think people are starting to see through Boris Johnson and he's got questions to answer himself fairly soon uh, about, the, uh, about the probe into his own integrity. But a uh, few people I want to talk about on manoeuvres this week. Um, I think we always disagree over what on manoeuvres really means, but I don't think we'll disagree over my first suggestion. Darren Jones, Labour MP for Bristol North West. Now, I mentioned before that um, Keir Starmer's planning a reshuffle of his largely anonymous shadow cabinet, who nobody other than you knows who they are. One person tipped for a bigger role is Darren Jones. He is uh, he's an MP down in the southwest. If you don't know Darren Jones, he's becoming something of a TikTok icon. I don't, I'm not on TikTok, so I, I looked at the TikTok videos over the weekend. Owing to his tough questioning of politicians, including the same uh, Boris Johnson and company leaders in his role as a chairman of the Business Energy and Industrial Strategy, BEIS Committee. Apparently... Nice. Apparently it's pronounced Bayes. Bayes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would like to give it the full title, you know. Apparently he's the first Darren ever to be <laughs> elected to Parliament, which I didn't know. He's also vegan because he's passionate about climate change as well. I've said before that Labour have got some heavyweight people in their shadow cabinet. Uh, sorry, they've got some, but they haven't got enough. I think Darren Jones is hugely impressive. Is he on manoeuvres? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can't genuinely offer any direct insight about this. He's definitely someone to watch. He's without question an excellent politician. Apparently on Wednesday this week, he's got the chief exec of the Royal Mail back in for another grilling, which I, I can't imagine that guy's going to be looking forward to that one, but everyone else will be getting the popcorn out. He's definitely making an impact. 
the very fact that you've heard of him says so. But you just like blokes called Darren. You just you don't you don't want Angelas and Rachels and Yvettes in there and Lisas. You you'd rather just No, no, it's not that at all. It's not that at all. I'm nobody is more passionate about women in business, women in politics than I am. Um well, I could think of maybe millions of women, but yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's 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 no, you're absolutely, you know, you're absolutely miles off the mark there. Um but I think Darren Jones is definitely one to watch. Yeah. But anyway, the, did you know that the politician with the largest social media following is actually the very youthful Zara Sultana, the MP for Coventry, Labour MP, very left wing, who likes to make videos extolling socialism and building herself up as the voice of the young left. It's good to see her using the tools at, it's like her, she's and Darren Jones, using the tools at their disposal to make their points and get them across. And I, on the back of your suggestion for her as potentially being a name from manoeuvres, I I did look no, at No, 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 that's not what I said. I just said she's an interesting politician. She is an interesting politician. I looked but at she's her, not on manoeuvres. I looked at her over the weekend as well. She reposted a video over her support of Jeremy Corbyn saying he should be allowed to stand for Labour in the next general election. Clearly, that puts her at odds with Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. Um, she's a, an interesting politician, as yeah. you mentioned, only 29 with a very small majority, but uh, making lots of noises. So who else um, will fit into your very simplistic misunderstanding of the term on manoeuvres this okay, week? Okay, okay. Well, the question is, he might deny he's on manoeuvres, but there's a very interesting name that came up a lot last week, Stephen Bartlett. Now, Stephen Bartlett's famous because he's uh, on Dragon's Den. He's a co-founder of a Manchester headquartered business called Social Chain. He set it up with a guy who I know pretty well called Dominic McGregor. Um, he's best known, this is Stephen Bartlett, as the host of a podcast which is marginally more successful than this one called Diary of a CEO recently revealed he's got 10 million downloads which is which is a few million more than us um, he became the youngest dragon on Dragon's Den earlier this month we ran a story in Business Cloud I don't know if you picked it up in uh, Business Desk but Bartlett posted on LinkedIn his response to the fact that Social Chain was sold for a modest 7.7 .7 million with a potential future payments of 9.5 which would push up the overall sale price to about 16 and a bit million now Bartlett wrote that at the time of his departure Social Chain Group was generating in excess of 300 million pound in revenues and would go on to reach a valuation of 600 million on the stock market. This figure, 600 million, is really, really important. It's one that Stephen Bartlett repeated a lot, especially in relation to the fact that he became the youngest dragon on Dragon's Den. Last week, the Times did a story headlined why Stephen Bartlett is not the tycoon that he claimed. Now, I've met Bartlett. He is the best publicist I've ever met, although I can't comment on his business acumen because I simply don't know and I don't want to speculate. Equally, I can't comment on the veracity of the article in the Times. I've not seen any comments by Bartlett in relation to that. Prolific North have reported that uh, he's said to have made a legal complaint. There's a lot of manoeuvring going on here. What do you think? Well, yeah, Stephen Bartlett has clarified that he sold his agency, Social Chain, to a much bigger German e-commerce business a few years ago. What what year did you say it was? A 2019, yeah. I think. So he sold it to this German e-commerce business, which then changed its name, partly because of all the noise and publicity that Stephen Bartlett is very capable of generating. They changed its name to Social Chain AG. They have now sold the agency side of the business that they acquired off Stephen Bartlett back then to a London agency. So I do worry... That uh, so he so he's then used that six hundred million pound valuation to make out that dollar dollar valuation dollar or yeah, euros yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. Um, that he's this massive tycoon. I don't think there's anything factually incorrect in the Times story from what I've seen, and um, and I'm not sure what it is that uh, Stephen Bartlett has made a complaint about. Um, whether anybody can tie those claims that he's made to um to, to to direct quotes from him or whether he's just he just fakes it till he makes it i'm not sure um but i do worry chris and i'm, I'm really genuine and very respectful when i say this to you there are lots of people in the business world in the northwest particularly in journalism uh, who, who support these temporary media darlings and they never seem to get found out in the northwest until they reach a national stage there's a whole number of them that you could quote and, and I've come across a few in my time, and the media has a responsibility to be far more discriminating, even exercising the one tool that they've got, which is ignoring them. And respectfully, 
with you know with your time at Insider, with your time at Business Cloud, is you do like to boost up these big egos who claim who make big claims and handing out awards to them. And you know I've been very critical of this in the past, and I will be held held to account if Business Desk is responsible for boosting some of these people. But I just think we've got to take a reality check. There was a guy called Ruben Singh a few years ago, who's he was in the National Portrait Gallery. But we did some meticulous investigation about how much he was really worth, spoke to the businesses that uh, that acquired companies off him, and it, it was proven, proven to be an absolute straw man, an absolute nothing of a guy. As, as journalists, I will agree and disagree with you, uh, but I'm also going to make a point as well. In terms of, I think us as journalists, we have a responsibility to make sure that we try to do some some checks some due diligence um on on some of the press releases that we get sent through it's quite funny but the sunday times do their rich list and i went to have a coffee with a guy uh, who i won't name because he wouldn't want to be named and i said to him look mate i said i don't understand how you've not been included in the sunday times rich list and he said chris he said the people who don't want to be included are the ones who've got the money he said he said so always take what you read with a pinch of salt and i thought that was really telling actually um I think in terms of you know whether or not I'm partly responsible um, for 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 blowing smoke up the derriers of people and making them bigger than they should be, I think that's a bit harsh. Now you won't hear me say this, but when I was an investigative reporter, I won an award. It was the it was a UK award actually for journalist of the year for a series of investigations that I did. I was working at the Bristol Evening Post at the time, and we had an editor, uh, sadly died, uh, a mank actually, a massive Man United fan called Mike Lowe, who paid me only to do investigations that move the dark. He's didn't want me doing the bread and butter stories. She just wanted me to do the really big investigations. And I might spend two or three weeks doing an investigation. Some months even, I'd be working on investigations. And I won awards on the back of it, as did the uh, publication as well. And we held people to account. The problem you've got now is that is that we work in a situation where journalism numbers are down to an all-time low. We're going to talk about that in part three. You know, as well as I know, the ramifications of getting it wrong. If you name somebody who uh, and you make an allegation about that person, Person, then you face legal action and that's the price that you you pay you're walking a tightrope so i won't apologize though for my good new blogs on a friday that you can find on my linkedin channel only good news on a friday chris chris mcguire good news blogs because michael taylor really hates them i don't know chris that's not fair i don't say i don't hate them but i just i just think it is an example it's the opposite of what uh, jonathan aitken you were quoting last week standing up against the uh, with the sword of truth against the uh, twisted journalism. I know people can have a, a rough, give a rough time to journalists who get it wrong. And I think that's, that's only right and proper. And, and people don't like cynical journalism. But I think at the same time, I look at the stats about which stories on business desk people like. Yeah, all right, so people like footballs, but football stories like Man United, our lead story this week, today. Um, but I think as well, we've got to do our due diligence a lot more when we hand out awards and you know, kissing the arse of some of these business people. Because frankly, I think we have been complicit. You, and I include, I say we, I'm being generous now, so I'm not just pointing the finger yeah. at you. But I do think the media as a whole has been complicit in promoting the egos and the false image, the false gods of some of these big leaders. We could have a conversation, and we do sometimes off air, where we talk about people that we both know are dodgy, um, and and it's incumbent on us, if we can, to prove that's the case. Clearly, we can't air that publicly. One thing I would just say, over the weekend, um, I did a story for Business Desk, which we published today about... Business Cloud. Bricks. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I've, not, I've not got a job at Business Desk yet, but I, I, did, a, I did a piece for Business Cloud, the well-established, much-respected publication about Purple Bricks, the online estate agency business, and they announced on Friday that they were effectively putting themselves up for sale. So we did a story where we threw that forward. I got three property experts to give me their opinion, etc etc that's right what i do say is once a week on a friday i will only publish a good news blog that's that's the difference the rest of the week then you know it's, it's fair's fair's game i'll do anything on any anybody and on that note let's have a break So welcome back to the third and final part of episode two of season three of Northern Spin. Now, we've both had a busy week, Michael. What have you been up to? Well, a gruelling four-hour planning committee meeting in Manchester with some tetchy encounters between the chair and the Lib Dem leader of Manchester City Council. I think he's a leader of a Lib Dem group of two, Councillor John Leach from Didsbury West. Um, interestingly, the Great Northern Scheme got through. 
um, two large new residential towers, a new park, new office accommodation, a cinema and a car park being knocked down to make for make way for commercial space. I noted that Anwell Homes got their scheme through in Chalton. Yes, more homes yeah. needed for Chalton, definitely. And But McCarthy and Stone were knocked back by local objections in Didsbury for a retirement uh, property. Also up was 247 Upper Brook Street, right next door to my old student house in Manchester, 245 Upper Brook Street. It used to be a bail hostel, and we had some right old run-ins with the neighbours uh, occasionally. But bizarrely... We never got burgled in our student house, which was quite unusual in Manchester in the 80s. Is it like a blue plaque outside to say Michael Taylor once lived here? Well, strangely enough, we had a reunion in 2017. We got six of us from our gang of seven to get together. And they live all over the world, Hong Kong, south of France, the US, London. And we went back to 245 Upper Brook Street and we knocked on the door and the students there were massively unimpressed. <laughs> we were going, do you know who we are? We're legends. <laughs> Yeah, did he bring pasta around as well? I said, I'm the, uh, I said, uh, I'm, the, I'm the head of regional affairs at Manchester Met University. And my mate John said, I'm the head of London for NatWest. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the hotel next door, it's been, uh, it's now been converted into a hostel for homeless people. I'm also, in the last week, I've been working on a very detailed story with lots of complex documents, legal checks, and some emotionally damaged people who want to tell me their story about how they had their businesses stolen from them. So I look forward to that. that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I look forward that? to that. Well, what I find quite refreshing actually is that you spend four hours in a council planning meeting. Uh, that is refreshing because, um, you know, a lot of publications, I like you, we work in this game. So I spend all my time looking at stories and trying to stand them up. And then I look at how stories are reported and the number of stories that are literally just copy and pasted. Yeah. And they're very niche tech websites and you see the stuff that appears on the uh, stock exchange and they just literally copy and paste. They do that for two reasons. One, because, um, you know, they've not got journalists who are good looking through the stories. The job of a journalist is actually to find the line in the story and report it as impartially as they can. Yeah, um, we had a few of them last week. Um, there's the, the way that some of the other financial news media reported certain stories. I, I like to think we can try and provide some insight and observation and try to find the angle. But again, you know, stock exchange stories come out at seven. We we hit the send button at eight. So if there's a lot of them, we sometimes you you do have to just cut and paste the relevant bits. I'm afraid to say. No, it's not our <laughs> finest finest moment. Huh? So I had a busy but, week, but we do do we we do try and do our best to get the the news out to people as quickly as possible. Um, yeah, I had a busy week. I didn't go to a four hour planning meeting, but um, to be fair, I, I also want to just say Joseph Timon from the. Um, uh, local democracy reporter for Manchester. He was there as well. I think the local democracy reporters have been a really, really good um, addition. And I used to work a lot with Nick Statham, who's the local democracy reporter for Stockport and one other greater Manchester borough. You know, they do a very, very thorough factual job of reporting. They're funded by the BBC, but their content can be uh, downloaded by any media outlet. But in obviously in greater Manchester, mostly it's the Manchester Evening News. I was asked recently to give some advice to somebody aspiring to be a journalist. And I said to them, I said, if you believe you can't make a difference, don't be a journalist. I said, it's the best job in the world. I said, but it's what you make it. Um, I hosted a round table. You know all about round tables, but uh, hosted this round table on uh, Wednesday. There's a recruitment company called Fairmont Recruitment. Um, they actually got on very well with Oscar Recruitment, which is the reason I'm mentioning them. But um, we had a uh, we had 14 speakers, and which is which is too many for a round table. Yeah, it is. So so we decided actually I decided I'd change things up a bit I don't know if you remember the TV quiz 15 to 1 with William G Stewart and uh, we basically got a fan a semicircle of seats um, and then we just interviewed him in the middle of the room and then we had two hours of literally just sharing experiences the good the bad and the ugly really insightful really enjoyed it um, something I want to mention to you is an article by David Barnett in Tortoise Media. Um, I've started listening to some of Tortoise Media stuff as well. They tend to do much more in-depth stuff as well. This yeah. read by David Barnett, they estimate how long these things take to read. 19 minutes, which is phenomenal. <laughs> and his uh, article <clears throat> have you, was entitled... Have you subscribed to Tortoise? No, I haven't. You should. No, I haven't. I can get you a discount code. Okay, okay. You can get it for free. I'll subscribe. Uh, and David Barnett's article was entitled, What Happened, or sorry, Whatever Happened to Local Newspapers? 
Okay. What do you want to say on that? Well, it's an absolute tragedy what's happened to local papers. Although my background is in business magazines, I do write a column for the Tameside Reporter and Glossop Chronicle. And the quality of their output, I have to say, compared to other local papers that I see, like the Lancaster Guardian that my mum still takes and the Stockport Express is night and day. So many of the wounds that I see that the local newspaper industry has inflicted on itself have been self-inflicted and not enough attention has been paid to the advertising markets that Facebook and Google have decimated, motors, homes, and recruitment. So it was good to see David Barnett's, Barnett's piece in Tortoise actually looking at that, how the business model of, lo of local press has been so undermined. But I'll tell you this, Chris, <clears throat> before I ask you about your time on the Chorley and Leyland Guardian, and other local newspapers you've worked on. The big thing for me is you go to any website on the internet and the user experience that you get, the single worst experience that you will have on any website will be from a newspaper website. They're absolutely dreadful with pop-up banners, intrusive videos, absolutely dreadful. And I think that's part of the reason. They never, ever fully embraced the internet. They always saw it as a threat. They thought it'd go away. They thought radio would be, local radio would be too expensive. And the mentality of those local monopolies and the managers that ran commercially operations in local newspaper territories was always, let's crush the competition at all costs. That's all they've got. We've got to stop the competition. And in the end, they found a competitor in the shape of the big tech giants that absolutely blew them away. I think they've had shoddy management. I, um, I agree. Um, the newspaper groups that have sort of survived have been the independent ones. And when I say survived, I don't mean just still in existence. I mean actually produce a newspaper that's worthy of the name. Uh, it's not to say there aren't some really good journalists still working in the regional, journal uh, regional newspapers. Uh, just to give you a bit of an insight, is that when I was the editor of the Chorley and Leyland Guardian, um, we were heavily dependent on the property market, the estate agents advertising, uh, and the, uh, you know, the car companies advertising as well, the dealerships. And I remember... We lost all the estate agency adverts. They suddenly decided to go fortnightly. So you went from having a 96-page pagination newspaper to a 56-page pagination newspaper the following week as well. And as a consequence, if you lose that sort of revenue, then suddenly you have to make cuts from your own staff. So you lose reporters, and then it becomes a, a vicious um, race to the bottom. The article you mentioned by David Bartlett in Tortoise Media, which which I did decide, <laughs> which I read, um, they did a couple of interviews with a couple of people that I respect. Steve Dyson used to be the editor of the Birmingham Mail, now very much a, a political analyst, and Gillian Parkinson, she was the ex-editor of the Langstreet Evening Post, she used to be the editor of the Chorley Guardian before me as well. Um, when I was at the Chorley and Leyland Guardian from 2006 to 2011, not that long ago, I had two mantras. The first one was, if it happened in Chorley and Leyland, it had to be in the Guardian, whether it was a fire, a court case, or an accident. That's why I was quite interested by you spending four hours in a planning meeting. The best stories we ever got were from the planning agenda. You'd literally fight each other off for that planning agenda. Secondly, if we couldn't be first with the news, mm. we had to be best with the news as well. And, you know, I'm never going to wash any, you know, dirty linen in public as well. But I said that I wouldn't put all my best stories on the website until they'd appeared in the newspaper. Because if I did that, I gave people a reason not to buy the newspaper as opposed to look at the website first. So if there was a car accident, you'd report it, but you might do the interview with a family of the person who'd sadly died uh, on, on, on the, um, in the newspaper first, and then you'd publish it on the website. So during my six years as editor, we grew the circulation from 13,100 to 13,300. Now that's unheard of it was unheard of you know in local newspaper to grow your circulation the figure that stood out for me in the article by david barnett was that according to uk press gazette which is the industry uh, watchword if you like publication they said that between 2005 2020 265 local newspapers had closed and it comes back to the point you made as well about the quality of content. Um, you look at, um, there are some publications, I'm not going to name them, but it's literally the number of websites I suddenly find myself being diverted to because I've accidentally clicked on an advert when I actually mean to scroll down on the story. Um, you know, it's horrific. Um, the mainstream uh, news then. Yeah. I mean, they they do dominate. They seem to have <clears> about 50. <throat> we, we've, got a, we've got a policy with um, 
with Business Cloud that we only put two adverts in a story. Um, that's what we do. So we limit it to two, and I think two is reasonable. It, it, I mentioned Liam Thorpe last week. He's uh, political editor at the Liverpool Echo. He did this fantastic investigation, which I spoke about at length last week, about Labour politicians, past and present, who were avoiding car parking charges. You've spoken about the fact, and I admire you in terms of wanting to hold people to account and not just, you know, publishing press releases willy-nilly as they appear. That's great, but it comes back to the point that we both made, which is that you know the 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 cuts to the newspapers. It's it's not death by a thousand cuts. It's worse than that, and as a consequence, there aren't the journalists to hold people to account. And as if there were, they're worried then about about being sued. Yeah, there is that, but there's also the. the there's just not the inclination. There's no, it's a culture inside media organisations about what it is that they exist for and why they go there. I think there will be a revolution. I think we've seen publications, as we've been talking about, like Tortoise, which is a digital disruptor. It does feel very much very Guardian-y, very BBC-ish in its kind of tone and content and way it's pitched itself. I'm not sure whether it's where, where it is financially at the moment. In Manchester, we've got the Manchester Mill and an offshoot from that in Liverpool called The Post, which are looking to do a very different style of long form, very considered sort of long reads. And I've noticed that the, the Manchester Evening News on their newsletter at the weekend that their editor puts out very much apes the style of the mill. I mean, again, it just comes back to that thing. Little old mill, which is run by a bunch of 20-somethings based out of the Royal Exchange in a small office, has got Reach PLC, a global, almost a, you know, a national stock market quoted business, you know, looking to squeeze them and push them out of business at every opportunity. I could be wrong, but I think the guy behind the mill, Joshy, is now in his thirties. I mean, so Joshy, you want to come most on? Most of his staff are in the twenties. No, they are. And the I notice, I notice actually, they're advertising for more staff. I think in Liverpool, they're spreading their reach, yeah. which, which is, which is a really powerful uh, yeah, you, message. Yeah, you can't, you can't pick me up on that. I, my, my point remains that um, <clears throat> that Jack and Molly and all the rest of them, that, you know, they are gen generally young people making their way in journalism. And yes, of course, Joshy is indeed in his thirties. Yeah. Um, Right, any good TV and film recommendations? I've got a really good one. I've got a, a mediocre one, and I've got a bang average one. What, you're going to criticise something? No, you're I am. put I, it in your good news blog. <laughs> um, no, the one, well, the one that I really liked, and you're going to talk about it as well in a minute, but the, the gold on the BBC is brilliant. It centres on the Brinks-Mac gold bullion robbery in 1983. Hugh Bonneville, with his Essex accent, is centre stage. The actor who plays Kenneth Noy, the gangster, is Jack Loudon. I do think we've got to be really careful in terms of not glamorising crime as well. Well, because Kenneth Noy committed some horrendous crimes as well. Um, I, I do want to mention a name actually before I continue my look at the uh, TV and cinemas. Um, I noticed the world of sport, former world of sport presenter Dickie Davis has died. He was uh, 94. Now, people of my generation used to watch sport on a Saturday and I used to love him and Des Lynham as well. They both had the tashes. I mean, Dickie Davis, what a legend. Yeah, it is. No, about 94, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Good innings. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the flip side of the goal being absolutely fantastic, my wife dragged me along to the cinema this week. We are trying to go to the cinema a bit more than we used to to watch Magic Mike's Last Dance. Now, I know you'll be going to that. Now, the film stars Shannon Tatum as a retired male stripper. Um, now, you can work out the rest and the storyline for yourself as well. I'm not giving too much away. I'm not going to give much away about the storyline either, simply because I fell asleep. Um, I woke up at the end when uh, everyone started clapping. Um, I uh, When I stood up to exit the cinema, I noticed that I was one of only about three blokes in the packed cinema. I felt totally inadequate as well because everybody else was had a really buffed body. Not the other blokes in the cinema, but the, the film itself. Um, so uh, not one I'd recommend, but uh, the ladies in the room seemed to like it. My wife certainly liked it. Um, in between, in fact, I said to her, I said, do you think I could be a email stripper and uh, she's still laughing she's still laughing um, in between uh, the I watched last night I watched something called Till on um, I watched it on Prime actually it's only it's still going on at cinema this is interesting it's still going on at the cinema but they've put it on Prime at the moment so we paid like 16 quid to watch it but we would have gone to the cinema to have watched it it's a true story about the murder in 1955 of a guy called Emmett Till in Mississippi it was a racist murder it was horrific um, I didn't actually think the film did it just this actually but uh, what have you spotted recently um well i'm, I'm loving gold the gold too jack loudon played river actually in slow horses which was which i heartily recommend it's it's like spooks but it's like all the renegades from mi5 who were in a building in east london where they've all done dodgy things in the in the past that is absolutely brilliant slow horses i recommend that but jack loudon played a character called river in in that 
For me, initially when I started watching the gold, I thought he was too good looking and fresh faced to play an absolute horrible man like Kenneth Noy. But at the end of the first episode, I completely came round. And now I'm five episodes into it. Yeah, fine. He's absolutely nailed it. Absolutely brilliant. So we've also now finished Early Doors, setting the grapes in Stockport, which was magnificent. And like The Office, Faulty Towers and Phoenix Nights, I think it benefits from only ever having had two series. And anyway, this week I'm going to my friend Andy Spinoza's book launch, Manchester Unspun, published by Manchester University Press. So more on that next week. But that's it. Mm. Anything else to add? No, I think you've summed it up. Good luck on the book launch with uh, Andy Spinoza. I know that'll be good. But yeah, be um, yeah, we've got through a lot of stuff today. Yeah, so that's all for episode two of season three of Northern Spin. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google, all sorts of platforms I never even knew existed. Please give us a five-star review or a written review if that platform allows it. It all helps. Tell your friends, your family, your foes, tell everyone. Give us a listen. And don't forget to press the subscribe button if you can. Follow us on Twitter at at northern underscore spin one. Watch us on YouTube and you can see me fidgeting and scratching my beard till your heart's content. Thank you to What Media for recording this podcast, to our sponsors, Oscar Technology and Lily Shippen, and to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name, as ever, is Michael Taylor. And my name is Chris Goodnews Maguire. <laughs>